0: We continue with our theme of restoration. It's a pretty good theme for today because there is a lot of restoration that's being done uh, in our surrounding area, whether it be pipes or other conflicts from furnaces, etc. People are restoring. They're bringing it back to an earlier condition. They're reviving their situation. They're repairing, remodeling at this time. And to restore is that to impart new vigor to revive, new life. And Paul makes it clear that God wants to restore the church. And each one of us make up the church. And so therefore, it is God's desire that our lives would be restored spiritually. We are looking at the book of Philippians where Paul is writing to his congregation and he is encouraging them. And one of the key texts in the book of Philippians is that in the first chapter in verse number 6 where Paul instructs and he tells and he announces that we can be confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in each one of us will carry it on to completion until the day that we've been singing about this morning, the day of arriving in his presence in heaven, the day of Jesus Christ. The master builder is not through with us yet. It was a Sunday afternoon on January 12th of 2014 that my wife and I were at the Branson Airport. We were standing in the airport waiting for a Southwest airplane from Chicago to make a stop in Branson to take us on to Dallas. We were heading to Arizona for the Barrett-Jackson auction and also to visit some relatives. About 20 minutes before the plane was to arrive, we were instructed by those at the desk there to stand in line, get ready for boarding the plane. And as Lil and I watched the plane approach the airport, it flew on by. It disappeared. Southwest Airline. Shortly after a little confusion there at the desk, and of course, we were all within an earshot of the agents who seemed to be somewhat confused the word came in that the airplane landed at the wrong airport. That was interesting. Instead, it landed at a smaller airport only seven miles away. We heard that no one was hurt, but the runway at the M. Graham Clark Airport at the College of the Ozarks was considerably shorter. 3,738 feet. Compared to the airport at the Branson Airport, 7,140 feet. Later we were able to rub shoulders with the individuals as they started showing up at the Branson Airport by way of ground transportation. One man said, as soon as they landed the plane, the brakes were applied very hard and very forcibly. Seat belts were stretched out and The pressure of the brakes and burnt rubber could be smelt throughout the aircraft. Then the flight attendant announced, welcome to Branson. And it was just a few moments later, the pilot came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to tell you that we've landed at the wrong airport. At first, the passengers considered it to be um, somewhat of an inconvenience. But the first thing they were presented with is how to get off the airplane there were no ramps there and they had rolling steps that came up to the plane kind of old school but they got off and once they got off the plane someone else pointed that the edge of the runway was about a hundred feet away and there was four lanes of traffic just below a cliff southwest eventually brought in another plane and the passengers, which included my wife and I, we flew on to Love Field in Dallas It departed about four hours later. The people said the flight went well. It was a perfect flight until the approach, until the landing. Seven miles off, which isn't a long distance from what I understand when you're flying an airplane. But they were right there, the approach. That was absolutely fooled them as they landed that aircraft. And I started to wonder as I read the scripture that we're going to address today, how the approach in our lives may be similar. You see, every one of us have an approach in our lives. Do you know that you have an approach in your life? You have a way that you view life. You have a way that we would call an approach. You have a system of beliefs that you operate within. You have a narrative that plays in your head 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's the way that we view life. It's the belief that we hold. It's the dreams that we cherish. It's the things that we long for and the things that we seek after, our approach in life. For some of us, the approach is that we have a life that yields great joy. For others, the approach that we have in life is just ripping life out of our hands. It may not be as positive as the person you sit next to. For some of us, our approach is built around finances. It's built around money. Making as much money as we possibly can, hoping that perhaps it will fulfill us. Others have approach that is that of protecting a family that we dearly love. For some, the approach of life is that we may see life as being as healthy as possible, hoping that we will live to be at least 100 years old or over. That's our approach. What is your approach to life? What's the thing that drives you in life? What is the thing that motivates you? And usually it can be summed up in one sentence or so. But what is your approach? You see, for some, your approach is very negative. You're not as positive as the people that are around you. Others, your approach is that of being critical. Perhaps doing things your way, and there's no other way to get things done. Maybe your approach is quite positive. Perhaps you have an approach that's quite bossy. All others are wrong and your approach is correct. There may be some that are suffering with an approach of non-forgiving. You see, our approach to life determines our aptitude. It determines our ability for joy. The way that we go about living determines whether or not we walk in the fullness of joy that God has designed for each one of us. So many people think that the way that we experience joy is determined by the events that take place around us and and those good things that are happening in the immediate circumstances that we live in. But that is not true. As we continue our story And as we continue the scripture looking in the book of Philippians, we see Paul and we find him writing from a prison cell. We see a Paul, a man that is under house arrest in Rome. And he's been writing approximately seven to twelve years after planting a church in Philippi. And he sees it flourish and he sees it growing. And he writes back to his friends, many of them he knew, and he's writing to them. He's writing back to people that had walked along beside him in a good deal of time, and he wants to encourage them. And Paul is strong. Paul is a tough preacher. Paul is not afraid to repeat things. He's not afraid to say things over and over again. I guess if he had the parchment, his letter would be longer than five chapters. But he would write on and on. There's an approach in Paul's life. Sixteen times in his letter, he will use some derivative of this word, joy. Of this word, rejoice. And he emphasizes it as it is an approach in life. Today's passage, as we come to it, is an awkward passage for me as a pastor. It may be one of the most difficult passages, but the passage confronts a potential danger before it even happens. If you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn with me to that third chapter in Philippians. As I said, this could be one of the hardest passages Paul's about to confront a danger to the church that hadn't even happened yet in the first verse of Philippians the third chapter Paul says further or this word could be finally There seems to be a shifting of gears to a new subject here he says my brothers and sisters here's the approach rejoice in the Lord Rejoice in the Lord, and it's no trouble for me to write the same thing again, Paul says. You may be getting tired of this, but I'm telling you, rejoice in the Lord, and it is a safeguard for you. It'll protect you. He's preparing them, but it's an approach in life. Paul is setting the stage here to deal with some unpleasant issue. Now we go to the second verse. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Watch out for those dogs, the wicked men, and watch out for their evil deeds, those mutilators who say that you must be circumcised to be saved. It doesn't come across in English, but Paul uses here some incredibly harsh language. In this text, one translation says, watch out for the barking dogs. Watch out for the wild dogs. Now, these are not the domestic type. For those of you that are like me and you love dogs and you have the best dog in the world waiting for you to get home right now, you must realize that Paul is in a different context of time. Dogs weren't viewed as little cute pets. They were nasty, they were unclean, they were dangerous, and they often wandered into places that they did not belong. And Paul views these false teachers as dogs. They were entering the church, they were damaging the church, and these particular teachers were known as Judaizers. You see, during the time of the early church, Many devout Jews were willing to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but they wanted to hold on to forms of Judaism. They believed that the Gentiles, first of all, must become Jews first, and that involved the act of circumcision and taking on the law of Moses. You can read more about this in Acts the 15th chapter where there was a council that got together and they dealt with this subject, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's in Acts 15, the first chapter. The elders came together. It was Paul, it was Barnabas, um, James, and Peter, and they denied this claim. And they proclaimed the gospel of grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And salvation comes through Christ, and it comes through Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. And the Gentiles at this point did not need mutilation. They needed restoration. They needed a change in their life of following Christ. And in the early 2000s, there was a song, a popular song. The title of it was, Who Let the Dogs Out? I can remember that I did an outside wedding in Indiana. It was in a beautiful setting in a field. We had some sort of a rehearsal the night before, but I was taken by surprise because as I went to my place and stood before the audience that was sitting in that field, the song, Who Let the Dogs Out, came on. And all of a sudden, the bride's dog came running down the trail, the path to the altar, and it brought a bunch of laughs. You see, this dog was her companion. She wanted it part of the wedding. Who let the dogs out? Well, it was no laughing matter here in the book of Philippi. Who let these dogs out? The answer is the evil one. The devil who wants to destroy God's people And most of all, destroy their confidence in Jesus Christ's sufficient work. And Satan would not, he would like nothing more than to have people believe in the false gospel. So beware of the dogs, Paul says. Like physical dogs, there's all sorts of spiritual dogs we're finding. Many dogs do the same thing that these Judaizing dogs were doing. Namely, adding to the gospel. And when you add to the gospel, I remind you, you lose the gospel. You do away with it. It's not Jesus plus your good works, whatever your own version of good works may be. It is Jesus Christ alone. Alone. And as I read this, I sort of wonder why Paul is so upset. Now, you may feel like you've come to a medical seminar today. But there's false theology that's taken place. And the potential of it is becoming a huge issue in Philippi. Because there are Gentile believers there. And it was probably only a matter of time that some of these dogs would get into the church and convince them to be circumcised. Paul wasn't exactly neutral on this issue. Why? Because he understood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He knew the dangers of adding requirements. Look at verses 3 and 4 of this text. For it is we who are the circumcised. In other words, we're cut off from the flesh. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. Paul is saying, hey, if you want to go down this road, man, I can stand up against you. I can be there with you. Paul knew that there were only a few requirements to following Jesus Christ, and circumcision was not one of them. Well, what are the requirements? Well, he knew to worship by the Spirit of God, not by some human tradition or some external right. To the glory in jesus christ and what he's done for us and to refuse to depend upon human efforts to accomplish things and to please god you don't have to be circumcised to be a follower of christ wow you think baptism is inconvenient i've talked to some about being baptized in water and they're afraid of their makeup running
1: they're afraid of their hair
0: getting wet Afraid of what they're going to look like coming out of the tank. Can you imagine some deacons coming after you to get circumcised? I don't think the church would grow real quick. Uncomfortable subject. But this all sounds strange to us today because this really is not an issue for us today. It's not hotly debated in our circles. But the same kind of things are happening today. The equivalent today would be to say, you have to become a follower of Jesus Christ, plus you need to do something else. And that something else may be walking an aisle, it may be signing a card, it may be taking a class, it may be praying a certain prayer, it may be singing a certain way, it may be dressing in some particular type of clothing, and it's so easy to begin to add human requirements to what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Even add cultural requirements. Paul says in Philippians, the third chapter, verses four through six, he says, If you want to talk about this stuff or about that, he says, I'm on equal footing with any of you. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. and In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. And as far as zeal goes, man, I persecuted churches. As for righteousness based on the law. I'm faultless. Done all those things. And Paul had the right upbringing. He had the right nationality. He had the right family background. He had the greatest inheritance that you could have. He had the orthodoxy. He had activity in his life. And he had the morality. He had all the right credentials. credentials, But instead of bringing him closer to God they got in the way of his relationship with God. And the advantage of all of this became a disadvantage for Paul. His credentials, his advantages led him to persecute the church. These credentials led him to oppose to what God was doing. It would be like Paul saying today, you know, don't write me off thinking that I don't know the way the church works. I haven't missed church since uh, I was born. I've attended every meeting. I've attended every program in the church. I've memorized large portions of the hymnal and Bible. And Paul isn't challenging from the outside. He's challenging as someone who has been trained in the culture. And he has credibility to speak on these issues. When you and I come to Jesus Christ, or if there's someone listening and watching today, if if you're on the verge of making that move, or perhaps you've been a Christian a long time, I want you to know that Christ changes us. He changed me. And we know that there's nothing that we did or we could do to earn our salvation. And over time our character, at least in my experience, begins to change. And that's good things because spiritually there are expectations as we grow in maturity in Jesus Christ. And then after a while we begin to confuse our changed character with entry requirements of faith if we're not careful. We begin to think that you have to act a certain way You have to look a certain way. You have to clean up your act to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And there's there's scriptural expectations of that. We even begin, for some, to isolate from those who aren't like us. And we see that Christ went into the world. Paul goes into the world. And he addresses those that are not like him. And eventually, we can start to confuse the cultural markers, I'll call them, cultural markers, of what it means to be a good person with what it means to be a Christian, cultural markers. The markers we use, what Christians should do and what they shouldn't do, become as important as faith itself in Jesus Christ. Or in some situations, the markers even become more important than our faith. They become legalistic acts. Is there anything wrong with these markers? Things like dressing a certain way, like enjoying a certain type of music, or attending certain meetings, doing certain things, or not doing certain things. Just like in Paul's day. There was nothing wrong in itself with circumcision, not at all. The issue isn't the markers. The issue is our approach, our attitude towards them. That we begin to think that God is impressed by the issues that we love and enjoy and that others are required to do them as well. It really becomes a problem when we lose clarity about what really matters and we think that the markers are essential in our Christian walk. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting dressed up. The problem is is when we start to think that certain things that we wear could possibly impress God. The problem is when we think that God is more impressed with a man that's in a suit and tie or a woman that's in a dress rather than somebody else that's in jeans and a t-shirt like David Sims shared last week with our inner city campus. There's nothing that we, there, there is nothing that we could wear that earns us acceptance by God it may matter to you and it may even be important to you and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever but it's wrong when you think that you've earned points with god because of a certain marker in your life or that others should do as you do nothing will or nothing that we do out of human effort earns us acceptance with god That's the bottom line as I see it. Because when you read verses 7 and 8, what you find is that Paul says, whatever um, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Jesus Christ. Everything, even Paul's best credentials, are not just meaningless, they're garbage. They're trash. I understand that when translators worked on this verse, they had a challenge because Paul didn't use the word garbage in the original. He he actually used a vulgar word that refers to body waste. And it was a word that was designed to make this point very forcible. In other words, our best human efforts, the markers that we invent to to define who's in and who's out, they're not at all important. There may be nothing wrong with them in themselves, but when we make them issues... They're worse than garbage. They're worse than trash. We've got to get rid of them. And Paul says, it's the priceless gain of knowing Jesus Christ. Or some, some scripture says the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. In other words, it's about relationship. It's not only an intellectual thing. It's acknowledging Jesus Christ And it's obeying Christ. And then Paul outlines the results of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. First goes along with the theme today. The theme that the choir shared with us in the music. That we gain Christ. It means that one day on that judgment day we will be judged and we can cling to the righteousness that comes from faith in Jesus Christ rather than our own actions, rather than our own credentials. The ninth verse of this third chapter of Philippians, where it says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I pray that you have that righteousness today. I pray that Jesus Christ is in your heart and your life. It's going to be so much better to cling to Christ on that day than to brag about how we attended church or we did this or we wore that and we did all this other stuff. Paul says you you can't cling to both. It's, It's a lot better to cling to Jesus Christ. May that be our desire. Secondly, he says that our lives will take on the shape of Jesus Christ's life. When you look at the 10th verse and the 11th verse of this text, and as we move through it, Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, and to know the power of his resurrection, and to participate in his suffering, become like him in his death, and so somehow obtaining to the resurrection from the dead. Our lives will actually begin to look like Jesus Christ. We, you know, we can't control um, many things in our life, including how much we suffer. But we can control our passions. We can control our approach, our willingness to give up our lives so that we can gain our lives. We can decide to crucify ourselves daily and die to our own self-interest so that we can really live as the scripture says. So today, as I close I ask myself, after looking at this text, and I want to ask each one of you, is there something in your life that wants to add to the gospel? What is it? Is there something in all of us that wants to say, you're not one of us because, fill in the blank, because you look a certain way. Because you do or you don't do certain things. There's a certain marker that's important to you that you probably think is essential to follow Jesus Christ. It's not actually scriptural, but maybe you feel like it's essential because you have made it that way. God has worked in our lives a certain way. And we begin to think that, hey, That's the way God's got to work in every person's life, everybody's life, using the same programs, using the same music, the same everything that he did within us. And we become part of a certain culture which believes certain things are so important. And it's hard to step out of that culture and see that some things that we thought were essential are more cultural than they are biblical. The things that are important to you may be super good. They may be great. There's nothing wrong with them. You may even have arguments today. You may have verses today about why they're so important. There's nothing wrong with these things except when we think that God smiles on those who act in a certain way. Our way And that he frowns on those who don't. And the problem is, is that when we rely on our flesh, and flesh doesn't mean the physical body, by the way. It means our best human effort. Our best worship, our highest worship, our best worship. We need to get down to the bedrock of beliefs, first of all. The first bedrock is is that God and I are not partners in salvation. Jesus did it all. Although Paul says to work. He says to, to, not to work for your salvation, but to work with your salvation. There's an expectation to mature. But there's also the fact that you and I could do absolutely nothing. We can't add, even if we tried, Jesus Christ did it all. The second thing is, is to those of us who are tempted to add anything to the gospel, any attempts to add human requirements are not additions, but they're rejections of the gospel. As I see Paul addressing this subject, the minute we try to add something to the gospel, we're actually rejecting the whole gospel. Paul said that he considered some things garbage, Or worse, what are you doing? My day to take out the garbage is on Mondays. That's when they come around. But today, is there garbage in your life that God is saying, take it out? Not because there's anything wrong with it in itself, but because it's garbage compared to knowing Christ and helping others to know him. The surpassing worth of that is much greater than our do's and don'ts or the things that we feel are essential and they're not necessarily scriptural. Could be the number of years you've been a Christian, the number of years you've been baptized, maybe your prayer life and the things that you've done, what you know, what you don't know. Let's boast only about one thing. And I've been told this over and over again by some of you. There's only one thing we can boast about. I know Jesus. I know Jesus Christ. Rejoice in him always, Paul says. What's your approach to life? Are you heading for the wrong runway? Are we going to lose it? Because we add or we're going to consider our relationship with Christ. As Paul brings to our attention today. It surpasses all worth. A difficult text. But one I think we have to be reminded of. There's a contemporary Christian artist. His name is Matt Redman. Matt was the worship leader. Of Soul Survivor. Church in uh, Watford, England. The church grew and grew and grew, and Matt's music was going around the world. People were coming by the thousands to that church. And the pastor there did a very brave thing. He realized that the people were coming for the wrong reason. Nobody was singing, people were just kind of observing. They were watching, it was becoming a show. And the pastor made a decision you know what we're going to unplug the music we're going to shut the worship down and for several weeks you could hear the voices of the people they were just singing without music the band which was quite energized was not there and matt redmond his music was traveling through the world and he was a very well-known worship leader as he is to this day in the contemporary music scene and in christian music and he sat down and he penned the words to the song the heart of worship and it was all about the music fading the lights being shut down and the final point of what he had written was It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. You're the only one that we can boast in as the Apostle Paul. It's all about you. It's not about our additions. It's not about our corrections. It's not about who we see that can join our club because they're like us. It's about Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.